You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. Yahweh has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. Yahweh your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head, as Yahweh has spoken. And Yahweh will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land, when he destroyed them. And Yahweh will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is Yahweh your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that Yahweh has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is Yahweh who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua, and present yourselves in the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And Yahweh appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song, and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, 
which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And Yahweh commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against Yahweh. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Yahweh alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, 
You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Yahweh saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains, and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not Yahweh who did this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight? Unless their rock had sold them, and Yahweh had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For Yahweh will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection." See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make a life. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, 
And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. That very day Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 677 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. That was a reading of two chapters of Deuteronomy 31 and 32, because you can't just stop on that last verse in Deuteronomy 31. You have to read the Song of Moses. As you go through, you just have to read it. It goes together. But I wonder what it sounded like, right? What did it sound like? Did it sound like bluegrass? Did it sound like rap? Did it sound like rock? Did you have Moses up there, Joshua on the electric guitar, Eleazar playing the drums? I mean, what did it sound like? We don't know, right? We don't know. We know what the words were. We know what the ideas were. Were. We know what the concept was. We know what the message was. What the music was formatted like is admittedly beside the point. But there's a very metal quality to some of these lyrics in the Song of Moses. There's a very metal quality. It would go very well with heavy rock, at least the way that our music typically sounds when These are the kinds of lyrics. I mean, just realize what's being talked about here is not life and death and the abstract and not a quick pivot away as soon as we mention death, a quick pivot away to focus on the positivity. No, no. There is detail. This is personal. There's talk of arrows drunk with blood, a flashing sword. There's talk here of repaying those who hate God. There's talk here of killing. There's talk of vengeance. There's a reminder of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed because they filled up the cup of wrath and their judgment was timely and it was deserved. And in our day, very often, if we believe it or we say we believe it, we don't talk about it so much because you're going to get a bad rap. You're going to get a bad reputation if you talk about these things and focus on them over much. And if we believe that these things existed, all too often we over-spiritualize them 
to the exclusion of a practical application. And what I mean by practical application is that we would execute judgment or we would judge or we would say this is what is right and this is what is wrong and make sense of our present circumstances. Notice also all of this is reminiscent of in the gospel accounts when Jesus knows and discerns what is in the hearts of those who have come out, especially among the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to hear him teach, to see him perform miracles, supposedly, but he perceives what is in their hearts, that they are looking for something, right? Some way to grab hold of him rhetorically in front of everyone and to invalidate him, to trip him up or to expose him as a fraud. They're looking for anything they can throw at him to discredit him. And it says in various places that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their heart. He knew what they were about to do or what they were conceiving of. There's something very similar to that here in Deuteronomy 31 to 32. God knows that this people is already, before Moses has passed, just because it's very close that he's going to pass away, this people is already turning their thoughts and attentions to worshiping other gods. Just like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them, he was gone 40 days and 40 nights, and they made a calf for themselves before he has passed, before Moses has gone up on the mountain here to die. They are already in their hearts plotting how they will liberate themselves from serving Yahweh and serve gods who are no gods. And that's an interesting thing here too. You see mention of a few categories of idols. It's not just idols made with the hands. There's also mention of demons, very explicitly. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 32, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. But what is this In context of what precipitated this following after demons and false gods, strange gods, new gods, what precipitated it? Growing fat, stout, sleek. There's a prerequisite of sorts, at least in this selection of verses. One of the ways you get off into idolatry is you become self-indulgent. That's how it starts, which puts fasting as a practice, as a spiritual discipline into a new light. If self-indulgence can very quickly turn to idolatry, then fasting can redirect our attentions and affections back to Yahweh. But we have strange gods as the principal provocation of Yahweh God. And we have already here, before they have gone in to the promised land, a conspiring. And then think about this. 
when Joshua is told to be strong and courageous, first of all, let's make sure that the people who are exercised about so-called toxic masculinity and hyper-masculinity, let's make sure that they hear that that was a command. Be strong and courageous. Be mighty and brave. Why? Because it's time for you to play the man. It's time for you to man up. It's time for you to fight and win. And you will win if you trust your soul to God. But why? Right? Why is strength, why is bravery requisite? Typically, when I've read these passages or thought about them, it's been obvious, first and foremost, the reason is because of the people who are in Canaan, who are going to be made war against, who are going to be driven out from before Israel. You need to be strong so that you can have more strength than those people when you come to the battle. So your sword stabs the other guy in the belly. So your spear slashes the other guy's face. So your arrows penetrate the armor of the enemy instead of the other way around, you being the one who's filled with arrows, lying on the field, breathing your last. That makes intuitive sense, but then that's not all there is to it. And there is a requisite strength for battle. You don't want to go into a battle weak. Why? Because it makes you easy to kill. And it makes it hard for you to kill your enemy. And if the business of the day in a battle is you kill the enemy until they surrender or rout, then you need strength to do that. But if you swear off strength because Yahweh fights for us, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Yahweh is the one who commands you to fight as well. Yahweh is the one who commands you to be strong, but not just strong. Because strength is not first and foremost or the only thing that wins battles. You could say cunning, shrewdness, strategery (laughs) wins battles, but courage wins battles. You have to have courage to win a battle. Why? Because if you don't have courage, you're going to fight really strong right up until the moment where fear seizes you, gets the better of you, and then you're going to be double-minded and having one eye on the enemy and one eye on the exit. That is when the enemy will get you and your companions or you'll run for it, which is not the best way to win battles. Sometimes it's necessary to make a retreat, make a withdrawal, fall back, regroup, rally on somebody who knows what's up, re-engage from a position of strength. But if you're always running, you're never winning. If you're always fleeing, if you're always withdrawing, then you cannot win the battle and you cannot win the war. So you have to have courage. If you have courage and strength and Yahweh himself fights for you, then you will win. But then it's not just the enemy per se that Joshua, who is inheriting the mantle of leadership from Moses, it's not just the enemy that Joshua needs to have courage to be able to stand up against in battle. Joshua is dealing with a people who already and right now are plotting and scheming how they could get a better deal if they worship the gods of the nations instead of Yahweh, their God. 
And this people, Joshua will remember, picked up stones to stone himself and Caleb after those two spies brought back a good report of the land 40 years prior. Ten spies gave a bad report, which was, there are giants in the land. They're too strong for us. We should turn back now. See also references to a lack of strength relative to giants. Point A. See also the lack of bravery, the lack of courage relative a daunting challenge. What God is commanding Joshua to embody here as he is about to lead is what he believed in 40 years prior, what he was calling Israel to believe they should be about 40 years prior. And yet, just like 40 years prior, with a different generation, sure, but people are people, just like 40 years prior, this people also have every potential of at a certain point picking up stones if given half the chance and stoning Joshua to death so they can go back to Egypt or they can do their own thing. Except there again, if Yahweh goes with him, Yahweh is a protection not just against the enemy, but against his own people. Yahweh is a protection against his fellow Israelites who will, at a certain point, rebel. They will go after other gods. And in that case, exactly what would they be fighting the enemy nations they're driving out of Canaan for? What's the point? You might as well just settle down, intermarry, kick up your feet, cut a deal. That's not what they're supposed to be about. It's going to take strength and it's going to take courage for Joshua to resist those insinuations that maybe we should compromise, maybe we should moderate our mission here from God. As we will find in short order, because we're almost to the end of Deuteronomy, as we will find in very short order, Joshua is up to the challenge by God's grace, being strong, being courageous, being exemplary. We also, as men, should be strong and courageous. If we have wives and children, we should lead them. If we're in a position of authority, we should fear God and be strong and courageous as we execute our duties faithfully in a way that honors God. We should speak only what is true, hate bribes, refuse to be bullied and intimidated and threatened, be wise as serpents, don't get me wrong, but be harmless as doves as it pertains to the innocent. Recognize the distinction between the innocent, who we are called to protect, to look out for and to provide and deliver justice for, and the wicked who prey upon the innocent every chance they get. Now, briefly, for each of these stories we're going to read through, turning our attention to current events right now, practical application time for our day to understand the times that we live in, to know what we should be about, to know how to be as wise as serpents, harmless as doves, I draw your attention to Marie Delorty over at the Daily Wire, July 28th, with some news. More than 100 New York City public school students identified as X last year, according to a report. A total of 108 students, to be exact, in the nation's largest public school district had their gender listed as X instead of male or female. In the first year, the option was available for students claiming a non-binary or gender-fluid identity, Chalkbeat reported. 
The X gender students are just 0.01% of New York's 1.1 million public school students, but the numbers are expected to grow since the number of children who identify as something other than their biological gender is also growing. Now, a quick thought on this as it will pertain to some other items we will get into as we continue in this podcast episode. X is not a gender. X is not a option, really. He created the male and female in the beginning. Male or female. Those are the two options. Yes, gender is binary. That's the rule. X means nothing. That is to say also, X meaning nothing is the point. There's a nihilism. There is a self-immolation quality to putting X on the document with regards to your sexuality, your gender, male or female, X. What is that? That means nothing. And I mean, it means nothing. You are claiming 108 students in New York City's schools are claiming my gender, my sex, it means nothing. It does not matter. But it's not just a lack of care. It's an affirmative. It's a positive claim of nothingness, which is nonsense. This is the mark of a reprobate mind. But then these children did not get these ideas from nowhere. They weren't born this way. They weren't born with these ideas. They were raised in such a way as to favor X. They've been conditioned by the culture. They have been affirmed into it. It's been incentivized. Meanwhile, traditional masculinity for boys, femininity for girls has been stigmatized. It's been corrupted and tainted and then stigmatized. What is a young man supposed to do if he is told for him to be masculine is toxic? It's only going to get him into trouble. It's going to mark his record forever and hurt his chances of being able to finish school, get a job, stay out of trouble, have friends. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to androgenize. That's the idea. This is a kind of neutering. You know, yesterday at work, I brought a book in that's a history of the harems of the Ottoman Turks. It's a used book, an antique book that I picked up at Wampus Books in Loveland, Colorado. Here a couple of weeks ago, Lauren and I got out for a date and we like to go to used bookstores. Wampus is cool. It's good. We like to go to used bookstores when we get a chance to get out, just the two of us. We like books. We like big books, and we cannot lie. But I brought this book, this history of the harem of the Ottoman Turks in to work because one of our SCADA guys has been to the palace that used to house the harem of the sultans. And he had been talking about it last week. And I thought, oh, I have a book about this. I just bought a book about this. Here, take a look. And of course, he's flipping through it and he handed it back. He said, I probably won't ever read this. My attention span is too short. I have too short of an attention span. It would just sit on my shelf. But thanks for bringing it in. Thanks for letting me look at it. It had illustrations and pictures and such. It was reminiscent for him of his trip back in 2008 to Istanbul, But 
he commented in passing before we changed the subject and something else came up and we had to get back to work. He commented, you know, one of the most interesting things about the harem to me is that they had these eunuchs, right? It was only eunuchs who could work in the harem. And how would you like to have that job? No, thanks. But then what we're having done in America, in our public schools, is essentially the making of eunuchs. That's what it is. It's the wealthiest, most powerful men who, in recent years, if you will remember, were outed, or it was very, very close to their being outed, the richest, most powerful, best connected men in the U.S. and around the world for their relationship with a certain Jeffrey Epstein who didn't kill himself, where underage teenage girls were being brought to these wealthy, powerful men for sex, which is to say they were being prostituted. They were being trafficked. These young, beautiful teenage girls underage were being prostituted to these wealthy, powerful men. And then when everything broke, after quite some time, by the way, after years of allegations, claims, insinuations being dismissed, not followed up on, not investigated because partiality, Jeffrey Epstein arrested in prison, killed himself, and then what? Who has been held accountable? Who among his clientele has been arrested for statutory rape? If it's the law on the books, it's a curious thing that common people are arrested for these things. Common people are thrown in prison for decades of their lives for these kinds of things, but these wealthy, powerful men and some women, have gotten off scot-free. The media runs interference. The political establishment covers for them. Meanwhile, an increasing number of school-aged children in the U.S. are being groomed by the curriculum. The young ladies are being groomed to be promiscuous and then to abort the product of their promiscuity Young women are being groomed to prostitute themselves, to be easily purchasable for the right price. Young men, meanwhile, are effectively, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, socially made into eunuchs, as if this is one big harem for the wealthiest, most powerful men. And really, truly, why not if we're all just animals? If The origin story that the public schools have been teaching generations of Americans for decades isn't just idolatrous in the abstract, taking credit away from God in the beginning, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. No, no, not just taking credit away from him, but giving the credit to unguided natural processes, essentially the survival of the fittest, meaning that if you want human evolution to progress, the unfit must be weeded out. If you want the best in breed, which is a eugenics idea that actually goes back at least to, in our day, slave owners in the South who would selectively breed their slaves. If you go back a hundred years though to the eugenics movement and the beginning of what became Planned Parenthood and the Birth Control League, the legalization of birth control and abortion were an easy sell to those who believed that 
the unfit to reproduce should not be reproducing. But who, by inverse, do they think should be reproducing, if anybody? Who would they say is the best in breed? Obviously themselves. And to the victor go the spoils. So what's catching our attention here is X. X on documentation. Are you male or female? That's catching our attention. But the inverse is young men generally are being pressured to become eunuchs, essentially. By the education that they're being given, they're being fashioned and formed into slaves incapable of competing with the would-be sultans and kings and emperors over their petty empires. For what? For the breeding stock. All this about empowerment for young women, where they're being taught to esteem a career and making so much money above marriage, above having children, above being a housewife and submitting to their own husband, keeping the home, fearing the Lord, Generations of young women being taught to esteem nothing so much as the affirmation they would get from the owner of the company, upper management, the corporation. Those young ladies are being taught essentially to prostitute themselves. And the young men, meanwhile, are not for no reason drugged up to make them behave, to make them settle down, required to stay still, stigmatized if They behave in masculine ways. Why? Because of the exact same interests, the exact same ambitions that drove the sultan to acquire a harem and make eunuchs to serve in it. It's the same thing. It just looks a little different and we call it something different, but it's the same thing at the root. And this is why we homeschool. For our next bit of current events, I want to draw your attention to A post by Peter Heck over at Not To Be, July 27th. Why they're doing it, this may be the best explanation for Disney's self-destruction. Before I read a little bit of commentary that he is bringing to bear from someone else, I'll play for you a little bit of audio. This will be cut one of some interviews, I guess cut one and cut two, some interviews with the lead actress playing Snow White in the live-action remake by Walt Disney. Here it is, without gilding the lily any further. Cut one, and then after that I'll play cut two for you. Take a listen. You said you were bringing a modern edge to it on stage. What do you mean by that? I just mean that it's no longer 1937, and we absolutely wrote a Snow White. That she's is not going to be yeah, saved by the prince. She's not going to be saved by the prince, and she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be, and the leader that her late father told her that she could be if she was fearless, fair, brave, and true. And so it's just a really incredible story for, I think, young people everywhere to see themselves in. Snow White is running for president. <laughs> I'm launching my campaign. I am. And let's go ahead and play cut two as well. Here it is. The cartoon was made 85 years ago, and therefore it's extremely dated when it comes to the ideas of women being in roles of power and, uh, and what a woman is fit for in the world. And so when we came to reimagining the actual role of Snow White, it became about the fairest of them all, meaning who is the most just and who uh, can become a fantastic leader 
And the reality is, you know, Snow White has to learn a lot of lessons about coming into her own power before she can come into power over a kingdom. Also, the fact that she's not going to be saved by the prince, and she's the proactive one, and she's the one who set the terms, um, is what makes it so relevant to where we are today. Okay. Now for some commentary. Conservative preacher Michael Clary is highlighted in his best guess for why Disney is doing this. Why take a beloved story of Snow White, which, oh, by the way, Tolkien and Lewis hated, 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 hated with a passion, Disney's adaptation of the classic fable. But why take that animated cartoon and do a women's empowerment thing with it when Disney has been getting crushed at the box office. They've been getting crushed. They put out these movies and people are not wanting to go to their theme parks like they used to. And they're not wanting to buy what Disney is selling like they used to. Why are they doing this? Here's what Michael Clary had to say. And I quote, it's clear at this point that Disney has dug themselves a hole they can't get out of. This interview is for the upcoming Snow White, but with a modern edge. Wow, innovative. The young actress says it's no longer 1937 because we're so much better than they were. She's not going to be saved by the prince. Yeah, who needs a man to save her? She's not going to be dreaming about true love. Good. Girls hate that crap these days. This isn't 1937. Girls don't want to fall in love. Gross. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be. That's the ticket. All girls dream about that. All girls dream about these days is leadership. Disney has to know this message won't sell, but they can't turn back now. They're still benefiting from the trust they'd accumulated back when they cared about their audiences and made decent films, but that time is running out. Disney Corp is beclowning itself with this kind of propaganda. They're a joke. Their credibility with their target audience isn't any better than Bud Light. They're a progressive propaganda machine, and every family knows it, but they can't stop doing it. Their brand identity requires them to continue creating soulless garbage to stay in the good graces of LGBTQ activists who are now running the show. Families aren't buying it. Disney was once associated with wholesome family entertainment. Now, not so much. You can't continue to undermine the core values of your target audience and expect people to keep shelling out cash for it. What parent wants to take their kids to a special day at the movies, shell out their hard-earned cash to sit in a theater getting lectured at by a self-righteous, preachy screenplay that revels in undermining the values you're trying to instill in your children. The Disney worldview is one that would deprive parents of grandchildren in the future because it tells little girls that the good life is to be girl bossing in some corporate boardroom, not falling in love, getting married, and building a loving family together. Yuck, that's so 1937. Patriarchy. But since Disney has run out of new ideas, they're cannibalizing the vault by modernizing the old embarrassing film classics, all but ensuring they'll erase whatever decent legacy they might otherwise have had. You're committing suicide, Disney. Fine with me. The sooner the better. Here's one household where you won't be missed. Now, I want to comment on the commentary here. Go back to what I said before I read that extended quote. It was not for no reason that Tolkien and Lewis hated Disney's adaptation of Snow White. Their reasons were that they saw what he was doing as commercializing and exploiting these classic fables. You might say, growing up with the 1937 Snow White animated film. It was so good and wholesome, but they didn't see it that way. They didn't see it as good and wholesome. They saw it as his perverting 
a classic story, thinking he had improved on it. And what was the measure? The measure was we make money, right? But it was propaganda back in 1937. In yesterday's podcast episode, I played for you a short film audio clip from an Instagram video my wife sent me in recent days for encouraging parents to not overpopulate the planet. Do your part. Embrace family planning. Embrace abortion, essentially. Embrace birth control, essentially. Embrace government policies that curb the growth of humanity on the planet or else starvation, unhappiness, want, famine, misery. Well, so also, 1937, 30 years prior in the Snow White story, the nutritional quality of the original fable, as Lewis and Tolkien saw it, had been taken out and what had been put in was cutesiness. But they didn't see that cutesiness as being so wholesome. Why do we assume that cutesiness is the same thing as wholesomeness, particularly when it's grown men who are propagating the cutesiness? And oh, by the way, maybe there is something of a coming full circle if the original stories were corrupted so that they could be brought to the big screen and make a lot of money and sell tickets at the movie theater and at the theme parks and also sell the merchandise, but also sell the ideas. If the original fables were corrupted and now the live action remakes are continuing on in corrupting the animated films from earlier decades, is Disney really doing such a new thing? You have to understand that the measure for what constitutes wholesomeness is what the two actresses, the leading actresses for this film are saying is outdated. The standard of what passed for good morals and a vision of the good life, that's outdated. But what's their vision of the good life? Cleary is correct in pointing out this is girl bossing. Girl bossing for young ladies is the vision of the good life. And oh, by the way, what was I saying about young men being turned into eunuchs? essentially. What exactly is the role of the young man in the story? Where's the young man? Where's his hero's tale? Does he have a hero's tale? What does it look like for the young man in terms of purpose and belonging, or does he just not matter? Of course, he doesn't matter. But if he does come into the conversation, he's something like a hindrance. He's an obstacle. He's just getting in the way. The young man is standing between this young woman, and realizing her true potential. That's not original at all, but that is the vision of the good life of the progressives, the radical egalitarians. That's the vision of the good life for the eugenicists, for the econs who are engineering your choices and your child's choice in life. What's the young lady being told in all of these films? Not just you don't need no man, but you need the men in your life to get out of the way so that you can become the leader you're supposed to be, which is to say, you become the matriarch of your people. You become the woman who roars so that everyone obeys you. Everyone follows your example. Everyone at the level of the common man aspires to your values, follows your directions. And the man 
He can either follow your lead. He can either support you, help you to become this great leader, or he is the villain. He is the obstacle. He's what stands between you and the fulfillment of your self-actualization, which is the greatest good. That's your purpose and belonging is to be at the head, to be in the lead, to be the one in charge, to be the one who rules in the home, in the community, in the academy, in the nation. The man, in that case, becomes something like a eunuch. But then remember, who actually holds the keys here? The ones who finance these films, the ones who make the decisions about hiring and firing, merging, dissolving the wealthiest, most powerful men still, in particular at the very top. So those men become the ones who have success to offer a achievement of this vision of the good life to reward young ladies with if they say what they're told to say, if they do what they're told to do, in essence, if they prostitute themselves. So where it would be that the young woman gets married and she submits to her own husband, now we will have all these young ladies submitting to whoever pays the piper and calls the tune. But then that's little to no different from prostitution. Ultimately, the very, very top, most powerful, most wealthy, most influential men, they're not going to give all the power to these young ladies. They are just going to put these ladies in a position of authority over the lesser men as they see them as a way of further emasculating those younger men in particular who otherwise would be rivals. Because again, all of this is within the framework of a return to a state of nature, not really the Garden of Eden, but then subconsciously, I think that's what it is. It's a return to the Garden of Eden without having to ask God to restore creation without the blood of Christ, without repentance, without confession of sin, without obedience to God. It's lawlessness, except where the law is, we do what the animals do. Because it's not just that the women are going to be put in the position of authority over all of the men in the plot or at odds with them if those men would not submit themselves meekly to the women. It's also the animals that will be put over the women because just as the man should have been head over the woman, the man and the woman should have been exercising dominion over the animals, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creatures that swim in the waters. And so if you put the woman actually in charge of the man, and then you put the animal in charge of the woman, you've effectively inverted and totally reversed and totally turned upside down the natural order. This is not actually new to Disney. This is not a new thing for Disney. This is actually something they've been doing for quite some time. And a lot of us are only just now catching on. And how I know that is because only here recently has Disney been suffering at the box office. But you could read Mark Elpinski's The Gospel According to Disney. You could read that to understand how for decades, Disney story after Disney story features children who effectively have at least no father or the father, if he is in the picture for a little while, he's a daughtering fool. Or if he's in the picture, he's killed. And the story only really begins, the action and the drama only really gets going once the child gets to think for themselves. 
either doing their own thing, regardless what their father told them to do, and thereby proving him wrong. And the wish fulfillment, the happily ever after, features prominently the father having to admit, you were right, I was wrong. What is that? Emasculation. That's part of this larger effort to re-engineer all of society with the post-war consensus propaganda being ultimately world peace, but world peace not without any conflict, but with conflict all managed by the men at the very, very top, the top men who are essentially aspiring sultans and kings and emperors in behavioral economics. They write themselves this blank check to regard themselves as econs, rational beings, everyone else as mere human. And since they see humanity as just another animal, you can manage the humans, engineer their choices, manage their breeding, manage their reproduction and how they provide for themselves and how they protect themselves or don't if you disarm them, how they communicate. You can corral that, funnel that. Ultimately, yes, after a fashion, what gets in the way is the young men in particular. The young men have to be reckoned with, have to be dealt with. You have to find a way to clip their wings so they don't fly the coop. You have to find a way to castrate them after a fashion, to neuter them, which is to say to neutralize them. This is wicked stuff. But I would draw your attention next to a piece by Miles Smith over at World Magazine, an opinion piece. What a prayer breakfast joke reveals. Subtitle, we've had a revolutionary shift away from Christian morality in standards of political propriety. Post date, July 31st, 2023. Here we have in view U.S. Representative Nancy Mace, Republican from South Carolina, who made headlines, stirred up quite a lot of scandal for attending a prayer breakfast hosted by U.S. Senator Tim Scott, running for president, also from South Carolina. Mace lives with her boyfriend and attempted a joke at the prayer breakfast about how that morning her boyfriend had tried to pull her to himself by the hips And she rebuffed his advance and said, not now. I'm going to be late to the prayer breakfast. I'll be home tonight. Which is to say, not married, living with a boyfriend. She thought it was okay, no big deal to joke about turning down her boyfriend and his sexual advance She'll follow up on that later, after the prayer breakfast. Her joking about this reveals a indifference, an apathy, not just towards Christians in the U.S., not just towards Christian morality, what my opinion is about what is right and wrong. Her joking about this at a prayer breakfast exposes gross indifference towards the Word of God and God himself. This is scary stuff. There's no fear of God before our eyes. If we shrug about this, if we laugh, we chuckle, we say, oh yeah, you bet. 
Where's the call to repentance? Where's the call to either move in with your parents, get your own place, stop living with your boyfriend, or get married? But this, again, is of a piece with the larger problem with how we've educated ourselves, how we've educated generations of children. And as I look at this, as I think about this, I am reminded of the judgment that God pronounces on Israel and Judah when he says that he detests their offerings. When God talks about a people who thinks they are his people and they go through the rituals and they check the boxes, they go through the motions, they say the magic words, and then they go right back to their sin, defrauding one another, slandering one another, abusing one another, oppressing the poor, the widows, the orphans, neglecting responsibilities they have, say, to honor their father and mother, to be faithful, to deal honestly. You get the distinct impression in his word that it's actually worse that you engage in the ritual because it's a farce and you're misrepresenting God by implying that he's okay with this, that he endorses it, that it's no big deal. Judgment will come for this. You're going to reap what you sow. You should confess and repent. Turn away from your sins, not because you fear my disapproval, but because you fear God. You should fear God. There's a holy and righteous God who sees this. He knows he's not amused by this. But as Miles Smith points out, it's not a new problem that those in political leadership would, behind the scenes, be engaging in sexual immorality. That's not a new thing. But in previous generations, there was a sense that it is immoral. What they were doing, they knew was wrong, but they were doing it and they were doing it in secret. They at least had the decency to blush about it, which is something, right? There's something to that. This represents our collectively having not just forgotten how to blush, but insolently, arrogantly flaunting our sin. And you say, well, at least it wasn't two women or at least it wasn't two men. No, you're thinking about this all wrong. Yes, it's an abomination. And yes, fornication between a man and a woman is a lesser sin. We know that from the penalties that are incurred. But we're not talking about greater and lesser sins here. We're talking about a lack of the fear of God before our eyes, that there's no sense in which this would even be called out. This wouldn't be rebuked. This wouldn't be corrected. Or if it would be, the one to do the correcting and the rebuking would themselves find the wrath, the penalty, the punishment, the censure was reserved for they themselves. And that too is part of the trajectory of a people on their way to being judged by God. We will reap what we sow here. The prayer breakfast should have been paused right there, right then. Was there no one with wisdom to judge these matters, as Paul would write to Corinth? Was there no one among you with wisdom to judge these matters? Who are you praying to anyways, that you would just carry on without a word about it, without calling for repentance, without calling for confession, without calling this sin and saying, please, God, our prayer breakfast is going to be devoted to asking your forgiveness. We pray and ask you to help us to do what is right, to obey your commands, to follow after your ways, to fear you, to love you, to trust you. We pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would help us, and that we would get a blessing 
as a result. We pray that. Was that how the prayer breakfast went? No, indeed. No, indeed. Another article you should check out is one from Aaron M. Wren, published just yesterday over at AaronWren.com, talking about how evangelical Christians in America always blame men all the time. Proof, positive, is a highlighted tweet from Joel Berry, managing editor of the Babylon Bee, and I quote, maybe we patriarchal male headship Christians should reserve our ire for her loser fiancé, who instead of leading her spiritually and selflessly is treating her like an unpaid prostitute. Aaron Wren writes in response, I don't know Barry and don't want to overly focus on him, but this tweet is a sort of distilled essence of how many conservative evangelicals view gender relations. There are a few elements at play here. The first is how conservative Christian gender theology, which applies even to those who don't claim the term patriarchal, puts the blame on men for almost everything. She's the one making a public statement at a prayer breakfast, but her fiance, whose name most people couldn't even tell you, is the one who should be castigated. Undoubtedly, from the standpoint of Christian morality, he is also in sin, but that doesn't make him responsible for her sin as well. Barry isn't the only one who talks like this. It includes the pastors and theologians as well. Matt Schmucker, ironic name, writing in a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor, said, and I quote, we do not want a brother standing at the altar on his wedding day looking at his beautiful bride only to imagine behind her the boys and men who took advantage of her and robbed her of the trust and confidence that she now needs for her husband. We do not want a sister standing at the altar on her wedding day looking at her handsome groom only to imagine behind him a string of relationships with girls and women he failed to honor and knowing that images in his head from pornography use and past flings may stick with him for a long time, end quote. Aaron Wren continues, note that he blames men both for their own sins and for the acts committed by women, even for the bride, it is men who, quote, took advantage of and, quote, robbed her, end quote. The use of victim language here implies that she is not morally responsible for her own action. Further on down, there's a quote from Justin Buzzard, again, ironic name. In his book, Date your wife. Quote, your wife isn't the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Men are the problem. If you want to change a marriage, change the man. If you want to change your marriage, you must first see that you are the main problem in your marriage. Dot, dot, dot. You are what is wrong with your marriage. It's your fault. This is the second most important truth to learn from this book. It's your fault. You are the husband. You are the man. End quote. A little further on down, Aaron Wren continues. Evangelical teaching about male headship in marriage is typically heavily qualified to make very clear that the man is the head only when it comes to his actual wife, not to any other women. This is usually done so as to make clear that there is no obligation by women to submit to any other man other than their actual husband. But what we see here is that they want to apply the responsibility they put on husbands onto men who are not married and whom they would say do not have the authority of a husband. Further on down, he continues. My impression is that most people who describe themselves as believing in patriarchy actually do believe women should not work outside the home, or at least should be primarily oriented towards the domestic sphere. But outside of the relatively small neo-patriarchy movement, conservative evangelicals frequently take a feminist inflected point of view when it comes to women and the public roles they can perform. The net result of this is that men are expected to live up to an extremely high burden of responsibility, self-sacrifice, servant leadership, etc. In essence, they are expected 
from a responsibility perspective at least, to carry out the duties and bear the burdens of husbands from the pre-industrial or pre-feminist past, whereas women are generally allowed to reject the majority of their old responsibilities as extra-biblical anachronisms, they tell men to be a 1950s dad like Ward Cleaver, but they'd never dream of telling women to behave like 1950s TV housewife June Cleaver. I describe this in more detail in my view of Senator Josh Hawley's latest book on manhood, where he very much operates in this style. I don't want to attribute the views expressed in Barry's tweet to all conservative evangelicals. For those who commented on Mace, the ones I saw mostly criticized her. The vast majority would reject the label of patriarchal, and we should expect that. Barry, because he works for the Babylon Bee, is going to post provocative and edgy takes. Although I disagree with him here, I don't have anything against him personally and enjoy the bee from time to time. At the same time, the general thrust of his tweet is an echo of a very real and even dominant strain of thinking within conservative evangelicalism. In fact, that's almost certainly where he got his ideas from. Some pastors might argue that this is what the Bible teaches. If that is what they truly believe, then fair enough. We all have to align ourselves with what we genuinely believe to be the truth. At the same time, they should be fully honest about what they are actually teaching. Why do I bring this up? It's again because of the stark disconnect between the hordes of young men being drawn to online influencers like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, and Andrew Tate, and the comparative lack of a draw to the church and other traditional institutions and authority figures. Given the vision of manhood put forward by the church, it's no wonder so many men don't want any part of it. Even if they can't articulate exactly what's wrong with what they're hearing, they can sense that there is something off. At the same time, we also see growing post-familialism, not just in society, but also within the church. This too represents a major challenge. Now let's just stop right there and let's recognize that Aaron Wren, smart guy, great commentary here. Aaron Wren is correct. And if you point this out, if you say, hey, wait a second, this is not actually a biblical partiality. This is very convenient to our times that we live in. You're showing partiality by bashing on the men They'll say, oh, well, you're just complaining. You're just whining that men have this burden. You will be mocked and scoffed at by the men who have these great big platforms in the church. And do you know what I think that ends up looking like? If we are not being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, in the reading of his word, if we are being conformed to the pattern of this world, what it looks like actually is we've just churched up What's happening in broader society with the making of eunuchs? And what I mean by that is in the church, you have in far too many cases, pastors acting like would-be sultans, kings, emperors, not respecting what the Bible would tell them and tell the women in their congregation about who the women should be submitting to. Now, it's a very curious thing that you have the reminder that women are supposed to submit to their own husbands, and men are told, listen, not all women are supposed to submit to you, only your wife. And the women are told, listen, women, you're not required to submit to all men, only your husband, when you get married. Or your father, by the way, that's also biblical. Your father, up until the age where you get married, the idea of young women moving out of the home and going and living by themselves, where does that come from? Where, where do we see an example of that in the Bible. And yet, if the pastors take it upon themselves to run the men down in front of their wives, in front of their children, disproportionately, not equally applying the rebukes and the exhortations, but basically 
preaching at the men that the men are failing, but then all too often only praising, only affirming their fellow pastors. What we have in the church is something that looks very much like what's happening in broader society, where the elites, the ruling class, seek to make eunuchs of the common man. They demand that the experts be trusted. They reserve the sole right to engineer the choices and the decisions. And the women, who do the women want approval from? The women in broader society who don't know God, who aren't Christians, who aren't in the church, the women in broader society, they want the affirmation of the senior man in the company. The guy who owns the company, the guy who runs the company, their boss, they want his approval. And if he affirms her, well, that's great. And if she's married, but her boss actually gets more submission from her than her husband does, what is that? Right? What is that? For that matter, in the church, if the men are being beat down in front of their wives and their children from the pulpit in trendy Christian book after trendy Christian book, and if the women submit to the pastor more than they submit to their own husband, what is that? If the women in the congregation show more respect for the pastor over the church than they show to their own husband, what is that? If you really think about this, if you really peel back the layers of this onion, what it comes down to is the erasure of one of the three spheres of biblical authority, which Protestant Christians in particular have recognized and affirmed for centuries and which the Bible clearly teaches. You have three spheres, not two, but two spheres in particular have conspired together collaborated together to all but erase the third sphere, either actively opposing it and undermining it or passively starving it of affirmation, support, and an appropriate degree of deference. Why are we always talking about separation of church and state? As if there is no authority for the husband and the father, it's simply put because the church is not maintaining that the husband and the father has real authority. Not really, truly. Not authority that the pastor or board of elders can't take away from him effectively, neutering him in his own home, effectively emasculating him in his own home anytime they want. And it could be over the most trivial of disagreements. As I've been alluding to in the case of the older man I know, in Montana, who was recently church disciplined out for disagreeing with the elders when they wanted to condemn all the kings and the patriarchs in the Old Testament for being polygamists, living in unrepentant sin all their lives. He was church disciplined out because he wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't agree to shut up about it, even though when he said, okay, well, show me in the scriptures where it says what you're claiming, what you're teaching, they couldn't do it. And they had to concede, oh, you're right about this and you're right about that. But still, we order you to stop talking about it. And when he refused to agree to that, they said, oh, you're not submitting to godly authority. Why is godly authority only being defined in our context as the pastor? Have you noticed that? Isn't that off? Is it possibly self-serving on the part of many pastors? And is it potentially self-reinforcing when pastors call other pastors? to get a rubber stamp sympathy vote 
from a distance. You know, that's the plot twist that has just come out this past week regarding the older man who was church disciplined up in Montana, who I know, who I'm related to actually, by the way. Come to find out the principal pastor who church disciplined this man out called up another member of my extended family who is also a pastor and told him his side of the story. And then when this pastor who's in my extended family was called up by a cousin of mine and asked about it, there was this, oh, well, we don't really know what the situation is when it came to coming to the defense of a relative who was a layperson who had been church disciplined out. But, 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 when the topic shifted to, wait a second, it's not clear how this deserved church discipline and being cast out and having one's salvation questioned or even denied. When the conversation shifted to that, it was, oh, but this is very clear, right? This is very clear. So totally murky. Oh, we don't know near enough. If you would call me to come to the aid of a mutual relative who's a layperson and oppose, contradict, question, cross-examine a fellow pastor, we don't know nearly enough to get involved. I mean, we, we just can't possibly know. And this is what I was referring to in part in yesterday's episode about the things that we put into the category of known unknowns. Sometimes they're known knowns, but we want to claim ignorance. We want to play stupid. Yeah, here's a good example of that. But then the tell is when you say, ah, but we do know this, 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 this. And what we don't know is why this would be a good example of a case for church discipline. Oh, but it's very clear. Wait, 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 wait. How is it very clear all of a sudden? How is it very clear when it works to the result that you want, which is to maintain the good old boys club, which benefits you as much as it benefits your friend in this other pastorate in this other church? It certainly looks untoward. The whole situation does. And there's a lot more to it than that. But the more makes me all the more incensed because this is partiality. Those who teach and those who are in positions of pastoral authority should be held to a higher standard. And instead, they're just given all the respect and all the authority in a church context in all too many cases. They can congratulate one another. They can humble brag about their own spirituality. But if a layman actually rises to the occasion, studying, applying himself, following after the Lord, he becomes very quickly a threat to be neutralized. If this is petty kingdom building, it becomes too much like Saul and David very easily. But then if the circular reasoning says, whatever the pastor says goes, what's left for the authority of the husband and the father? And why would we be surprised that so many young men either don't come to church or they don't see a value in getting married and having kids in the context of the church? When those are the dynamics, when broader society is emasculating them, and then they come to church and they get emasculated eternally at the level of the soul, broader society is emasculating them mentally, emotionally, socially. They come to the church and they get emasculated spiritually. What's left for them but to hide themselves? And for that matter too, if in broader society, the young women are being told to be the girl boss, and then they come to church 
And they're only ever encouraged. They're only ever affirmed. They're only ever told how good of a job they're doing. They're never corrected, rebuked, preached against. Tell me that that's not being conformed to the pattern of this world. You tell me that. I can't believe it, but you can try, right? You can try. You can tell me it and it won't be true. It is partiality. It's partiality and you can't just put all of the excuse making into the category of, well, men are just not willing to step up to their roles. Remember about Pharaoh? Do you remember when Pharaoh decided that the people of Israel were being too fruitful and they were multiplying too much and they were going to outnumber the Egyptians? And if a foreign army invaded, maybe the Hebrew men would join with the foreign army and make war against the Egyptians and overthrow them. Remember what his solution was for that? It wasn't to throw every baby boy or girl into the Nile. It wasn't to tell the Hebrew midwives to put every child to death, boy or girl. It was if a baby boy is born alive, kill that baby boy. Why? Because baby boys grow up to be men and men become a threat if what you're doing is corrupt or if anything goes, if might makes right. If it's survival of the fittest, you want to eliminate the offspring of your rival. Ultimately, you want to eliminate your rival. But then the flip side is, why do you let the girls live? Hmm? Do I really need to spell it out? Do I really need to explain why you let the young women of the Hebrews live? Surely you understand. Surely you know. Surely it makes sense that the young women, if this scheme were successful, of a whole generation would grow up and they would become the servants of the Egyptian men. They would become the employees, perhaps you might say, of the Egyptian men, but they would become the servants or the slaves or the wives added to the multiplied wives of the Egyptians, and therefore they would increase the strength of Egypt, making the Egyptian men and ultimately Pharaoh himself more powerful. We have this being attempted through abortion and birth control and propaganda, the public education system, compulsory government schooling, the teaching of gender theory. We have this being attempted right before our eyes with our own children, and it's in the church as well. And when the church is silent about it, then the church is compliant and is actually part of the problem. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. But if we don't do that, it's not like we do nothing. What we end up doing ultimately is finding ways to rationalize from the Bible by twisting scripture. And remember, even the devil can appear as an angel of light, test the spirits, doesn't just apply to the charismatic folks. It should also apply to the people who are very proud of how well they know their Bibles. Yes, but are you twisting the scriptures like the Pharisees would to trip up those you don't like, to destroy and undermine? And oh, by the way, shouldn't the Pharisees serve as exhibit A on how this can happen with pastors and husbands and fathers in their congregations? If it's arbitrary, if it's a blank check, the kind of authority that pastors in particular are given in the church, if it's arbitrary, and because we're told to submit ourselves to our elders in the church, and oh, by the way, that same word submit is for a wife to her husband, but isn't it curious? Have you noticed 
how well covered the ground is when it comes to pastors preaching about the limitations of how much a wife should submit to and respect her husband compared to the limitations on how much lay people in a church should submit to their pastor. Ooh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. What just happened, right? What are we talking about? Yeah, that's right. That's partiality and it's self-serving. Or how about when COVID hit and civil authorities were demanding churches shut their doors, refuse to meet in service, require social distancing, which is to say no holy handshakes, no holy hugs, wearing masks. There's a movie in theaters right now all about how John MacArthur's church, which I have plenty of critiques for along other lines, but in this they were exemplary, how John MacArthur's church refused to keep their doors shut in the state of California through COVID. Past a certain point, they closed for a little bit and then they evaluated, they assessed, they searched the scriptures, they read the word, they studied the word, they deliberated, they discussed, and they said, you know what? We must obey God rather than men on this. And oh, by the way, the partiality in that case was, let's let the leftist agitators riot. Let's let concert goers gather together in person. Let's let people who want to go to things that will replace and displace and substitute for Christianity, we'll let them congregate because it accomplishes our purposes. John MacArthur's church stayed open and they had much to draw on in scripture and in church history to substantiate and to justify noncompliance. What was the predicate? That the church also has authority from God and not just the civil authorities. Romans 13 is not a blank check. And oh, by the way, it is also supposed to be a litmus test for whether you should call the civil authorities to repentance. Are they rewarding those who do what is good? Are they punishing those who do what is evil? If the answer is no, well, then you should call them to repentance and you should not be complicit in the evil that they do. You should obey God rather than men. But isn't it interesting how many churches in America were thrown completely for a loop because they had no political theology. They had no understanding of when you preach at the civil authorities, rebuking them, calling them to be respectable, calling them to honor God. They had no framework for it, no frame of reference because they don't ever get into that. But what do they get into all the time, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, in book after book, in podcast after podcast, in interview after interview, in essay after essay, and glib Gospel Coalition post after blog post, all of the equivalent of what would be a necessary political theology for the home, but very top-heavy on trimming down and limiting the authority of husbands and fathers in their home, giving excuses and justification to wives and children to dishonor and to disrespect and to disobey the heads of their households. And yet, what's so interesting about this one pastor who did the church disciplining of an honored relative of mine up in Montana, he wrote a piece back in 2020 all about how he and the other elders at their church were going to comply with the mask mandate from the governor of the state of Montana. They were going to submit to it because 
We have a verse. We have one verse that says, be subject to the governing authorities in everything. And we're going to read that one verse. And we're going to build our whole political our whole political theology around that one verse, which is a terrible idea. It's like, where did you get your seminary education again? Really? Masters? Really? Ooh, yeah, maybe you should get a refund. <sighs> You're at least not using it right now in this case. But then it was interesting as I read through this piece, this blog post from the elders of this church written by this one elder in particular who has since moved on to a different church. The same mindset when it came to saying we are just going to submit to the governor of the state of Montana, that same mindset was how he capped off the explanation. If you have objections, if you disagree, if you don't like it, what we as the elders are deciding in this case, well, so also, you're just going to submit to us. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. Is this robust enough? Is this a healthy way to engage in these things, particularly if presumably your church is filled with husbands and fathers who also have authority? Is it only two spheres of authority? Is that what we're down to? What happened to the authority of the husband and the father? And oh, by the way, what are these young men supposed to aspire to? Are we setting them up for success or are we setting them up for disillusionment, discouragement, despair, and failure ultimately? Because we convince them that whatever happens, whatever the woman does, whatever you do, whatever your children does, whatever happens in society, whatever happens in the church, it's all your fault. If you're active, it's your fault. If you're passive, it's your fault. If you get engaged, it's your fault. If you withdraw, it's your fault. It's going to be your fault no matter what. It will all be blamed on you. Congratulations. And then we wonder why men don't show up or if they do show up, why they don't get involved, why they're not impressed, why they're not engaged, why they're not interested. It's because they don't feel especially like being a pinata. And all too often, the ones who are up for that, who are willing to keep coming back again and again and again to get beat with a stick, they suffer for it in that nobody in or out of the church will ever have respect for them. They're so whipped. They're so chastised. They're so successfully emasculated that they pose no threat to anyone, but then also they inspire no confidence in anyone. And meanwhile, who supposedly wins in the short term is whoever's the best at abusively wielding the cudgel of the two spheres that we're down to. But you know who you know who <laughs> will suddenly get involved in developing a robust political theology in a time of crisis. It's the pastors when they start sensing that the civil authorities have an idea of collapsing the authority of the church. Boy, that's revealing. That's telling. When the pastor senses that his authority, his being respected, his being followed, his being obeyed, his being submitted to in the context of the church is at stake because the radical left wants to take government and have one sphere of authority. Everything is within the state. Everything is for the state. The state is for the people. The people are the state. And therefore, one sphere is sufficient and more efficient, then the pastors start to, some of them, develop a political theology. But then here's the scary thing, the concerning thing. It's not all pastors jumping on board with the developing of this political theology. Some are, 
starting to get their minds around a political theology, while others are now applying the same tactic to those pastors who are stepping out of line and being nonconformists, that for decades, all of the above were applying to the sphere of authority in the home and in the family unit. Now, a lot of these pastors are getting a taste of their own medicine, unfortunately, but also, in some sense, deservedly, because the chickens have come home to roost. Interestingly enough, the solution for this is going to be found in Christian men, and I think especially Christian laymen, because it's Christian laymen who need to be getting married, having children, submitted to by their wives, obeyed by their children, treated with respect and consideration and honor, as God's word makes very clear they're supposed to be, not just by those under their authority, but by other men who also, yes, sure, have authority in the church. Great, but it's not absolute authority. I don't want a tyrant in the pulpit any more than I want the tyrant in the mayor's mansion or the governor's mansion or the White House. You shouldn't want that either. But it's interesting how both alike, the tyrants in the pulpits and the tyrants in the state houses have fixed so much of our attention in an asthmatic, allergic way to any potential, any even remote possibility of a husband or a father making the wrong decision or failing to make the right decision in a timely manner as they see it or as those under them see it, as those who cry out but may actually just be subverting godly authority in the home, and they have been for decades. This is something that needs to be discussed quite a lot more than I have time to right now. But the last thought I'll leave you with is pastors are going to have to really and truly build up the men in their churches and respect them and listen to them. Wives in the church really and truly need to be subject to their own husbands and not just to whatever authority has the most power in every other sphere. And then their husband gets the leftovers of consideration, obedience, submission. Nah, I don't know. That's so much of what's wrong with not just broken marriages, broken homes, fatherless children. That's so much of what's broken in the appropriate responsiveness which people in authority in the church or in business or in the government have to when they're told, hey, listen, I'm not good with that. I think we need to do something different. I think that's not what we're going to do first because of X, Y, and Z. As I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.